We've been doing a little series at our morning services on the theme of God as our Father, the privileges, the responsibilities of what that means. And we come to this wonderful passage in Romans 8 uh, this morning, Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. It's on page 1134 of your Bibles if you'd like to follow it through, Romans 8. And if I had a key verse, or key verse would be right in the middle, where Paul writes, verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Rather enjoyed a story I heard recently of a, an elderly man who lived in Northern Territories in Australia. He'd owned a large property for several years, and he'd built a dam in one of his lower paddocks uh, so he could water his mango and avocado trees. This dam had formed a pool, and he'd fixed it up for swimming. He put some picnic tables nearby, placed in the shade of the fruit trees. Well, one evening, the old farmer decided to go down to the dam and the pool to look it over, as he hadn't been there for a while. He grabbed a 10-litre bucket so he could bring back some fruit in it. As he neared the dam, he heard voices shouting and laughing. As he came closer, he discovered it was a bunch of young women who were swimming naked in his pool. Well, he made the women aware of his presence, and they all went immediately to the deep end. And one of the women shouted out to him, We're not coming out until you leave. And the old man said, Don't worry, I didn't come down here to watch you ladies swim naked. Holding up the bucket, he said, I'm here to feed the crocodile. <laughs> well, I suspect they moved pretty quickly. They didn't want to meet an untimely end, and uh, none of us would, because all of us in the end, we do have a fear of death, don't we? So final, so complete, so huge. We want to put it off as long as possible. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, once said, he who pretends to look on death without fear lies. All men are afraid of dying. This is the great law of sentient beings without which the entire human species would soon be destroyed. Now, Romans 8 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. And in it, Paul is facing a question that confronts all believers at some stage. He is facing the question of death. We've been promised hope in the face of death. Well, if that is the case, why is it that we who have been forgiven and accepted by Christ, we're a part of his family, we're on the winning side, as it were, we've received the promise of heaven, why do we still have to face so many of the problems of life? Why can't, why can't the Christian life be one of joy and happiness? Do we really have hope beyond the grave? Has Christ really changed everything? Well, Romans 8 is Paul's answer. It's all about Christ's victory over death. But more importantly, it's about the implications of that here and now. See, Paul tells us that one day we will be free. One day we will be with Christ in heaven forever. One day we will no longer have to face the problems of life. But for now, we have to. We must wait, we must pray, we must trust. And above all, we must rely on the truths that we believe and find solace in them. Now, later in the chapter, Paul talks about the extraordinary hope that we have. There are verses that are often read at a, a funeral service. And Paul tells us that whatever the world will throw at us, and no Christian is immune to these things, whether it be trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. In other words, he's saying every form of physical or mental or spiritual difficulty that we will face, 
Nevertheless, even though we face all those things, the world throws all them at us, nothing in the end can keep us from one day going to be with Christ forever. Because we're safe. That's the comfort of being part of his family. And here, for a moment in these verses, in the middle of Romans 8, Paul unpacks the idea of what being a member of God's family means. What being a child of God means. So we can talk so glibly, can't we, about being children of God. There are many people who have little or nothing to do with God or the church, still regard themselves as being his children in some way. But according to the Bible, we only become a child of God when we're adopted into his family, when we receive Christ, when we begin to follow him. That is the stage at which we become his children. And Paul here explains how being a child of God and knowing that we are his child can transform us in our thinking and our living, in the face of life, in the face of death. Just three things I want us to notice about this. Notice the first of all, the privilege of being his child, the privilege. Verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, death, life. Verse 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You receive the spirit of sonship. Paul's point is, you see, that naturally we are slaves. We are slaves to fear. We are naturally fearful beings. We fear for the future. We fear ultimately death. The world fears death. Many people are terrified by it, so they never talk about it. Much of the world's great literature is about death, with the fear of death as its central theme. I don't know if you're a devotee of Woody Allen films, he's always talking about death. He has a pathological fear of it. It's not that I'm afraid to die, he says. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Or else, again, you've know, heard this one as well. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. See, he's always caught up in this fear of death. And I suspect many people in the world are just like that. Well, the Christian has no need to. Because we're God's children. And one day, we know we will be going home to our Father and the son who has prepared a place for us. See, that's the extraordinary privilege of being a child of God. I remember watching a, a film some years ago about the life of an American missionary called Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you may have read her books. She was married to Jim Elliot, who lost his life very soon after they were married, trying to take the gospel to a South American tribe, the Alka Indians. After her husband's death, she decided that she herself would take the gospel to those same people who had murdered her husband. And many of them became followers of Christ as a result of it. Now in the film, she was asked by the interviewer, rather cynically, you know, why did you bother? You know, why did you take the gospel to these people? Weren't they perfectly happy as they were? And she gave a reply I've never forgotten. She said almost exactly these words. The Alka Indians may live happy lives, but they do not die happy deaths. If you'd ever heard the Alka death wail, you would never have asked that question. In other words, these people may have seemed happy and content, but they were utterly terrified of death. And Christ was the answer to their deepest needs and their deepest fears. Why? Well, because when we become a child of God, we are no longer slaves to fear. We don't have to fear death or the future anymore. We have received the spirit of sonship. We belong to him and we belong to him forever. Well, someone says, how do I know if I'm a child of God? 
So having pointed to the privilege of being a child of God, Paul points also to the proof of it. The end of verse 15. You receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, we know that we belong to Christ because God's Spirit inside us testifies to that truth. Now the Bible gives us three great reasons for believing that we are forgiven, that we are children of God. The first reason is God's Word. We trust in God's Word because it tells us that if we trust in Him, then we belong to Him forever. It tells us if we come to him, he will never cast us out, John 6, 37. It tells us that to all who believed him and received him, he gave the power to become children of God, John 1, 12. So God's word is the first rock, as it were, on which we depend. It's the first evidence that we belong to Christ. It's the first thing we turn to. The second is what Christ has done, Christ's work on the cross. See, we know we belong to God when we see that all our sins have been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, if it had been up to us, we could never know for sure that we belong to him. But because all our sins have been nailed to Christ on the cross, we know they've been paid for, that there is nothing that need become, come between us and our heavenly Father. We're not dependent on ourselves, on how good we are. We're dependent on what God has done in Christ. So that's the second reason we can know. It's God's word, it's the work of Christ, and thirdly, is the reason Paul gives us here. It is the internal witness of God's Spirit, His Spirit living within us to change us, that enables us to call God our Father, that brings us that relationship with God in heaven. In some ways it's the hardest to quantify, isn't it, because it's a sort of subjective thing. But I guess we all know, if we belong to Christ, that experience of knowing in our hearts that something is true and wanting to say, yes, that's it, He is our Father, he, we do belong to Him, we are His children, and so on. It's very interesting that Paul uses the Greek word here uh, for father and also the Syriac form of it, Abba, father. Why does he do that? Why does he use two words for father? Was he doing it for emphasis? Maybe. Some say Paul uses both words to show that there's no distinction between the different nations, that all of us can call God our father. Maybe. But I wonder if this isn't the reason. You see, for the Apostle Paul, Syriac was his native tongue. That was the, the language he'd spoken at home since he was a baby. Greek was one that he'd learned. He spoke it fluently. It was an appropriate one for his hearers. But it may just be that in his instinctive longing to express his joy, Paul lapses for a moment into his mother tongue because it's what came just most naturally to him. One of the commentators put it like this, Abba is the Syriac form of the Hebrew word for father. Therefore to the apostle it was the most familiar term to use. It would more naturally and fully express his filial feelings towards God than the foreign Greek word. And then he says this, It is rare indeed that any other than our mother tongue becomes so interwoven with our thoughts and feelings as to come up spontaneously when our hearts are overflowing. Expressions of tenderness are the last words of their native language which foreigners give up. And in times of excitement and delirium, they are sure to come back. Isn't that what's going on here? Paul is so excited, so overcome, that he just lapses into his mother tongue for a moment. As we all do when things uh, give us excitement and great joy. He's so overcome by the wonder of being a child of God that he uses the word he would have used as a child of his own father, Abba, Daddy. The Spirit, you see, spoke to his spirit that he was a son of God. That is just what he was. And I suspect we'll all... As I say, if we belong to Christ, we've had an experience of just knowing in our hearts 
that we belong to him. A moment of revelation, maybe, a moment of understanding. I'll never forget, some years ago, when I was uh, driving home one day, uh, I'd been kind of distant from things Christian for a bit. I just felt that I was somewhere apart from the from my heavenly father. I wasn't as walking as closely with him as I should. I was driving along the road and a car or the van came in the other direction. It was kind of some years ago, so it was all kind of painted in the sort of psychedelic colors. And it was a bit of an apparition really out of the blue. And suddenly this, this van draws past me. And in the middle, in huge letters were written the words, Jesus is Lord. And I remember even though I was really distant at that time, my heart sang. I thought, yes, he is Lord. I know he's Lord. It was just God's spirit witnessing with my spirit something I knew to be true. And that is what happens with God's spirit living within us. He witnesses with our spirit that he is our father, that God is our father, Abba, Father. That is the proof of sonship, that internal witness of God's spirit. And then from that he moves on most wonderfully to the promise of sonship, the promise of being children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, here Paul gives his answer to those who fear for the future. He says, we are God's children. We need have no fears about the future because, because we are God's children, we are heirs to the inheritance that God has prepared for us. The New Testament often uses this picture of our being heirs to show how secure we are in Christ. Because inheritance was seen as a much more secure means of obtaining possession than purchase. If you were an heir, if you had the inheritance, that was utterly and completely secure. Now what is this inheritance? It is what Christ won for us on the cross. It is eternal life. It is forgiveness. It's being set free from all the pains and sadnesses and stresses of this world. It's the promise of being forever in heaven. Above all, it is the promise of being with God himself of seeing him face to face, of living in his presence for all eternity. That is the greatest inheritance anybody could ever have. Remember those words in Revelation, where the voice from heaven says, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will be with them forever. We will be with him forever. That is our inheritance. That is our right as children of God. To be in that place when every tear is wiped from our eyes will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. All those things are gone. But above all, to be in a place where God is. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, put it like this. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. He is their wealth, their treasure, their food, their life, their ornaments, their crown, their everlasting honor and their glory. He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the water of life that runs through the tree of life that grows. See, that is the, the incredible, the wonderful, the extraordinary inheritance of every child of God, of every one of us who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our inheritance. It is sure. It is certain. No one can take it away from us. When I lived in France some years ago, I learned uh, that their inheritance laws were rather different from our own. In the UK, when someone dies, their will stipulates how the inheritance is divided up. Not so in France. When someone dies in France, all their possessions are divided up equally between the surviving children. So if they have a house, all the children have to agree to the sale of the house. If not, it remains unsold. And as you travel through France, you'll find many houses that have been unsold because the children couldn't agree, now the grandchildren couldn't agree, and all 16 of them have to agree, and so on. 
But the point of, of that means of inheritance is to show that it is secure. It doesn't depend on the whim of a parent. It can't be passed on to a second or third or fourth wife or husband. Everyone you see has their share. And in a similar way, our inheritance in Christ is absolutely secure. No one can take it away from us. If we belong to Christ, then we have no fear for the future. See, that's the privilege of being a child of God. The proof of being a child of God is the witness of the Spirit within our hearts. And the promise is that one day we will inherit all that Christ has won for us. It's there to give us security. So we don't worry, so we don't fear about the future. We don't have to fear death. And I guess that's the question, therefore, I want to leave with us. For some of us, death will be closer than for others. But all of us, one day, will face it, whatever age we are. What assurance do we have in the face of it? Well, here is all the assurance that we need. Yes, there are hardships now. Yes, there are trials now. Yes, there are worries now. Many of us probably are wrestling with some of those at the moment. But in the end, we will be safe because we're children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, let's pray and then we'll sing our final song together. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful truth this is, that we are your children, that we belong to you, that we belong to you forever, that one day we will see you face to face and we will be with you for all eternity, that we are heirs because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And I pray that you would imprint that on our hearts. You'd help us to know that and understand it for sure. And for those of us who at the moment are unsure, for those of us perhaps who don't yet belong to you, help us to, as it were, leave no stone unturned until we come to that position where we know and your spirit witnesses in our hearts that we truly belong to you for all eternity. Give each one of us that wonderful assurance, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.